Never knew I could feel like this Like I've never seen the sky before Want to vanish inside your kiss Every day I love you more and more Listen to my heart, can you hear it sing? Telling me to give you everything Seasons may change, winter to spring I love you until the end of time. And there's no Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio. It's this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 4th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Welcome back from your trip to Wichita. That's right. That's where I was. All right. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Michael Portantier is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. I think we have to sing happy birthday to Lou Libertori. Yes. Libertori. Yes, indeed. Happy birthday, Lou. my play. So um, and and was phenomenal, um, being funny in the first act and being very serious in the second. So um, yes, Lou did a wonderful job uh, with uh, God shows up, and I'm very grateful. Okay, so let's uh, before we get into our review section, I we wanted to talk a little bit about Hal Prince. Uh, so much has come up in the. Uh, of remembrances of Hal and his life. Of course, uh, earlier this week, he had passed away at the age of 91 in Reykjavik, Iceland. So, Peter, do you have any remembrances of Hal? Well, I'm sorry to say that I did not know him. I would run into him from time to time. But here's the irony. Um, Just a few months ago, maybe even less than a month ago, I was walking back from 59th's 59th, and um, I was passing the Paris Cinema, which it's amazing to me that that little theater still exists. Um, it's near the Plaza Hotel. And he was coming out uh, with his wife, Judy. And um, our eyes met, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to ask him a certain question. And um, maybe this is the time. But, yeah, you, know, he, 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 you always get into that thing of, am I bothering someone when you see somebody on the street like that? And, and so uh, I'll tell you what the question was, in fact. And that is the fact that um, back... In 1968, when Zorba was being readied and he was directing and producing, uh, he cast Herschel Bernardi and Maria Carnilova in the roles. And yet, earlier that year, he had done a production of Cabaret in London with Judy Dench and Sally Bowles, but Lila Kudrova as uh, Fraulein Schneider. And the thing was that 
Lila Kudrova, of course, played the role of um, Madame Hortense in Zorba the Greek, the movie in 1964, and did very well by it. She got an Oscar. And um, so the question is, why didn't he have Lila Kudrova do the part in the musical? Now, you might say, well, you know, she, could she sing? Well, obviously she could sing, so what? And uh, what would you do? And for that matter, as we learned many years later, she did appear in a musical revival uh, with Anthony Quinn and uh, won a Tony. So I always wanted to ask him that question, and here's my point, that um, as I saw him, I said, well, you know, another time. And this is another lesson about the fact that um, we should never say another time because we mm. don't know how much time anybody has, you know, and, you know, 91 is 91 after all. And uh, the life expectancy of a man in this country is 81. So um, I should have uh, struck while the iron is hot. But that's um, something that I'll always regret that I didn't get to really talk to him. And so many people this week on Facebook and other places were talking about I made this arbitrary call to him and he invited me up to his office and he gave me so much of his time. And, you know, I really regret that I didn't do that, you know. So um, I did find a statistic. Um, I've, I, this is in one of my books, and I updated it. And um, uh, starting in 1954, when he co-produced The Pajama Game, all right, so his name was on a playbill uh, as one of the producers. So I did a, a survey back then, and I updated it on how many days uh, Pal Prince has had his name on a Broadway playbill. Mm. So since 1954... Since that show opened, there have been 28,804 days, okay? And only 1,762 days have there been no Harold Prince names on any playbills. And sometimes they're even on two or three or four. So that is a 93% um, success rate. Really, who can, who can even begin to approach that? That in 65 years plus... To, to have a 93% success rate. And, of course, that figure only goes up every day because of Phantom of the Opera. Right, right. And, and what's so interesting, too, is that when he wrote his book, Contradictions, back in the uh, mid-'70s, he said, I don't think any show will ever run longer than Fiddler on the Roof. And little did he know that he would direct a production that would run four times as long as Fiddler. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. Um, and it's really approaching that figure now that it'll be four times as long as Fiddler, which is just extraordinary to say the least. Nobody ever predicted that um, a show would be running uh, 31, 32, 33. Who, uh, it's not impossible. We're going to see a press release sometime talking about the third of a century that indeed um, Phantom of the Opera has won, uh, run. And so how much of that is due to Harold Prince? Quite a bit, in fact. And it's really something that somebody who was a producer said, I really want to be a director. Okay, that's fine, you know, to say that, but who could really do it? Um, and <laughs> so many people have tried other jobs in the theater and have failed miserably, and he didn't. He became a sought-after director. I mean, he was <laughs> – even David Merrick uh, tried to get him to uh, direct to Low Dolly. Um, so he really was um, very esteemed in that way too, and he was just starting out as a director at that point. He had only taken over um, – um, the uh, direction of a family affair when it was in Philadelphia, and She Loves Me, which I did not see the original She Loves Me, but I don't know any human being who has seen it who has said it, that it, it was directed perfectly. So, um, so there's that. Now, I have to say, as a veteran of um, seeing the tryouts in Boston of 
company, the very first performance, Follies, um, a couple of weeks into the run, the very first performance of Night Music, and Pacific Overtures somewhere during the run. I have to say, and I, I know I've said this before, but it was really amazing how Prince and Sondheim uh, would make very few moves. You have to, uh, you have to understand I've been seeing pre-Broadway tryouts literally since I can get a few wholesale in 1962. I saw a lot of them in Boston. I saw a lot of them twice. And the thing was that they made the fewest moves, and yet they made them count the most. They knew what they had to do. Now, some of this, of course, is Sondheim, and that's great. You know, let's give him credit, too. But um, I also believe that there were discussions with Hal Prince uh, saying, Steve, you know what I think we should do here. So, uh, so he really was quite remarkable in so many ways. And, you know, you really have to give him credit in another sense, too. A lot of people, after doing that Purchase tryout, um, I'm talking about the, the town of Purchase in New York, there was a tryout of Kiss of the Spider Woman, which really didn't work out very well at all. And a lot of people have said the hell with it. And yet uh, he revamped it and um, it didn't even look like the same show. I mean, completely different set design and projection design that made such a difference, such a difference. So um, it, it was really great that he didn't give up on it when a lot of people would. Also, you know, when you think of Pacific Overtures, that is perhaps the strangest Broadway musical ever. When you really think of the fact, how, uh, how could that have been commercially successful? It is so out there. It is so edgy. It's, <laughs> let's even use the word bizarre. And yet he wanted to do it. He wanted to do it basically because, of course, it was all those things. And he had to um, do something that was completely different. We always attribute that to Sondheim. He wanted to do different things. And Sondheim rarely, if ever, repeated himself. But we have to say that Hal Prince was part of that as well, of course. And, of course, God knows that Sondheim is uh, the greatest composer lyricist we've had in, in the musical theater. But those shows wouldn't have gotten on if Hal Prince didn't say, okay, I'm producing them. I'm raising the money. I'm making it happen. Uh, and I'll be directing as well. So, I mean, there are so many stories that could be told and I will certainly yield the floor to Michael, but we really have to give credit to uh, this man who uh, did edgy shows and also did a terrific job directing on the 20th century, which was not an edgy show, a marvelous show, but not an edgy show. And to think that he adapted with the times, um, because the type of show he started out doing, like Pajama Game, um, as a producer, is very mm -hmm. far afield from Evita, you know, mm -hmm. when he started with working with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And um, supposedly, I, I had heard that um, he wanted to do Jesus Christ Superstar, too, but they'd already sold the rights to uh, Robert Stigwood's so, so really, I mean, uh, Michael, your turn. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot to say, too. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, another thing he deserves to be admired for um, among so many is that, uh, as I think we've discussed before, he had a very bad patch in the 80s. Oh, yeah. I, I guess beginning with Merrily We Roll Along and, the, mm -hmm. you know, the tremendously disappointing and spectacular uh, failure of that failure in terms of – <laughs> the length of the run, certainly, and, and financially, of course, look what's happened to that show. But uh, I'm sure that he must have considered just packing it in at that point. He had already had 
amazing successes in his life and career. And it would have been so easy to just, you know, go away. Right. But no, but yep. no yep. he did not. And right. I and in a way, I think maybe that's the most admirable thing about him, mm-hmm. because who yeah. who would do that? You know, it was it was really several flops one after another. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, what else? I was thinking that he has worked with his life, touched so many people that, for example, we have just read of the death of D.A. Pennybaker. Mm-hmm. Now, normally, um, those two would not have had any uh, – their lives would not have intersected at all. But, of course, uh, D.A. Pennybaker oh, – you know, he was a very famous docu- documentary filmmaker, and he did the the now iconic famous – documentary of the original cast recording sessions of company. Uh, I think it was Pennebaker's only uh, theater-related documentary, and it just so happened that it was that show, and of course it was Hal Prince. Uh, But really, if you... um, I mean, I think it would be easier to make a list of people that Hal Prince didn't work with uh, than one that he did, because it's just phenomenal. And I was also thinking if he um, if he had only produced West Side Story or Fiddler on the Roof, either one of those, and if he had only, quote unquote, directed cabaret or Company, or Follies, or A Little Night Music, or Sweeney Todd, or Evita, or Phantom of the Opera, he would still <laughs> deserve an honored place among the icons of Broadway. But but to have done all of those, it's it's almost unbelievable. It really is just incredible. I have two um, brief Prince anecdotes I, that I may have told before. I interviewed him some years ago in his office. I don't remember what the specific project was, but at any rate, we were talking about how, you know, there are no rules and nobody knows anything for right. sure. Yeah, and you yeah. never know what shows are going to catch on with an audience and which ones aren't and blah, blah, blah. And this led to me saying to him, well, yes, for example, I said, what would you say if I told you that I think Rosa is a better musical than the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and he kind of, you know, his eyes got a little wide and he said, well, if that's how you feel, then that's the truth for you. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Pretty classy answer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, Rosa had played 12 performances, I think. And Phantom was already, you know, already a long running show, although not not anywhere near where it is now. Yeah. Um, and then the other anecdote is that uh, some years ago, I wrote, co-wrote with Gerard Alessandrini a book about Gerard's Forbidden Broadway. And we were trying to get blurbs for the back cover of the book. And so, of course, I tried to get you know, some of the best people possible and everybody loved Forbidden Broadway. So I, so I was successful and I got quotes from Carol Channing, Cheetah Rivera, Raul Esparza and Mr. Prince. And, um, he said he wanted to write something to make clear not only how much he loved Forbidden Broadway, but also how disappointed he was in the general quality of present day Broadway shows. So, uh, as I posted uh, this on Facebook the other day, what he ended up writing was quote, 
quote, Gerard Alessandrini and his brilliant performers send up Broadway with a combination of hilarity and respect, nurturing a longing for the good old days when it was easier to send up excellent material. They are all about loving life theater. And what he meant was <laughs> it used to be easier to send up excellent material because there used to be lots of excellent, excellent material materials, yeah. to send up, but now not so much. So it was kind of a an indirect uh, pan uh, of what was happening on Broadway at that time, which I think uh, at that time it really, you know, it was not a good period. Um, so anyway, shortly after the book was published, I, I was uh, scheduled to be at a party uh, where I knew Mr. Prince was going to be. And so I brought him a copy of the book just because I wasn't sure if he had gotten one. And when I arrived at the party, he was talking with Mandy Patinkin. So I, you know, I took the opportunity and I handed him the book and I thanked him again for giving us the quote. And he immediately started thumbing through the book right there at the party. And uh, then I will, of course, never forget this. He turned to Mandy Patinkin and showed him the quote on the back of the book. And he had a big, big smile on his face, Hal did. And he said, look at the quote I gave them for this forbidden Broadway book. I just had to say something nasty about the theater today. Really shitty. <laughs> and, and but you know with a big big smile on his face like like gleeful you know mm -hmm. that he had that he had gotten his point through uh kind of subliminally almost <laughs> mm -hmm. and so i'll you know i'll never forget that but that 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 is another example of the class that he displayed and uh he he was just a titanic figure and there'll be no one obviously no one like him ever again there couldn't be anyone like him no they really couldn't could because, there. just because broadway has changed so much and that was another uh thing that he often lamented the uh the switch from individual producers to corporate product uh and uh, you know and certainly that you know i think we can all agree that that has been detrimental for the most part um so yeah he well you know um the point you made about how how many people he worked with and how many chances he gave people and all that perhaps the best example is um candor and ebb because their first show floor of the red menace which he produced but did not direct lasted 87 performances. And while there are magnificent things in Florida the Red Menace, and I'm thinking of Sing Happy and, of course, A Quiet Thing, mm. there are a lot of strange songs in Florida the Red Menace, uh, including one where literally the leading man sings with marbles in his mouth, and you can't understand a word he's saying. And it's, um, it's a comedy song, and it may be a sense of humor, it may not. Um, but anyway, the show failed. No question, lost every dime. Um, and soon, uh, well, he was famous for having meetings the day after a show opened to talk about the next one. And even after Flora got not such good reviews, uh, and it was clear even at that point, especially after a, a tryout in Boston, which also the reviews were not good, uh, and the show was really shaky. I, I saw it there. And he met with Kander and Ebb and said, um, let's do Cabaret. Uh, well, let's do Welcome to Berlin if we're going to get technical. And that really was something. You know, to, here's a, a songwriting team that quote unquote failed. You know, Flora has his admirers, but, you know, the, the real indication of a hit has always been and always will be to the payback of its investment. Therefore, Flora was not a hit. So um, 
but he still had confidence in these guys, even though some of those songs are really weird. Um, <laughs> he still had confidence. And look what happened. And look what happened. Um, little did we know that those guys would turn out to be giants, that those guys would turn out to be uh, the longest running collaboration between a composer and lyricist that the uh, musical theater um, uh, Broadway has ever had. Uh, and and again, he could have said, ho, 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 I ain't working with those guys again. All they gave me was a flop. And yet he could really see through that they had merit. And um, a lot of people couldn't. A lot of people couldn't. And all the in all the coverage of Hal's death that I read, I I think one of the things I read was that, uh, if I understand correctly, that Kander and Ebb adopted from him that thing of we will have a meeting on the day right. after uh, yeah. the day after the opening of every show, regardless of mm-hmm. whether the reviews are phenomenal or very bad. Um, so I think they they understood the wisdom of that. And look, you know, look what happened. You know. I've often said that um, I would love to be a fly on the wall in certain instances, um, like when um, Ethel Merman learned she wasn't going to do uh, the movie of Gypsy or when Carol Channing learned she wasn't going to do the movie of Hello, Dolly, or or when uh, the famous uh, Michael Bennett thing where he pretended to um, hurt himself during a chorus line rehearsal so that his actors could see how they should react uh, when when Paul falls in the show. Um, mm. I would have liked to have been at one of those meetings after a, a disastrous um, set of reviews had greeted the uh, Prince product the night before. Right. Um, it would have been very interesting to see what the attitude was. Um, could it really have been put aside totally? If so, then he's even greater than we thought. James, you had a question? Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that... Uh... Uh, in looking at all the remembrances that we've seen in the last week or so, it seems as though that he was a uh, 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 he was very often going to forbid, forbidden Broadway, and he <laughs> and he said that he recruited he recruited a lot of uh, talent out of forbidden Broadway, which I thought was really interesting because that you could see this this international producer and director. Uh, going to go sit in a hundred seat theater to find his next stars and people to replace and Phantom and all of his other projects that he's got going on. And he, you know, went out to see things, uh, you know, all the time. Oh, yes. Uh, And his connection to the people was uh, legendary as we've seen the famous typed letters. Imagine being his assistant, you know, (laughs) and typing all those letters to all those people. Uh, and and staying in touch with everybody and being so wonderful and gracious, he made you feel as though you were the most important person in the room. Was something that uh, so many people have have mentioned when speak uh, speaking about him. And for a really, I mean, honestly, for a producer to be so beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a producer uh, and then then a director, but someone like that with that amount of power. Yeah. And and, it, you know, it's it's just uncanny. It really is. Mm. Yeah, uh, I have to say that um, he was beloved. I mean, I, I now I hadn't thought about this before, but I don't recall people saying, oh, that prince, what a son of a bitch. No, absolutely. You know, I, I, I can't recall anybody saying that. Not a I mean, single case of it. 
Yeah, I mean, really, yeah. I never thought about that until you just brought this up. Yeah. But that's that's entirely true. I, I, I've never heard a bad word about him from somebody who worked with him or somebody who didn't work with him. Um, I'm sure, of course, like all of us, he had a dark side, uh, which of us does not. But nevertheless, um, you hear a lot of things about a lot of people in this business, and um, we certainly won't repeat them here. But – Nevertheless, um, I, I never did hear anything, uh, you know, uh, that, um, oh, that bastard. Um, so mm. that's kind of interesting, too. Mm. I, I um, uh, took a photo of him and Sheldon Harnick a few years ago uh, at an event at the uh, National Arts Club for the Encompass New Opera Theater. And it's a, it's a pretty good photo. I'll send it along. But I, at first I was looking at it and I was like, what's wrong with this picture? And it took me a while to figure out that Hal actually has his glasses um, over, over his eyes. Not, wow. Not, 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 I thought they were just props. <laughs> I, know. I know. That's pretty rare. And it is just, rare. That's I'm rare. Sa- I'm saving and, that photo. <laughs> well, I've also saved a letter from um, somewhere hmm. 66 or 67 where um, I wrote him uh, um, asking a few questions about some of the shows that he had done. And I mentioned I'm looking forward to the girls upstairs. And he wrote back and said, well, actually, I'm not doing the girls upstairs. And um, that's, of course, the musical that turned out to be Follies. So um, it's a letter I have never thrown away and never will. And it's in my Sondheim and Company book uh, right in the chapter for Follies. Mm. Um, but uh, it is kind of interesting to, to have him say, no, I'm not doing it, which really goes to show that people can't change their minds, can't they? So there's also been talk this week of uh, renaming a Broadway theater to The Prince and uh, lots of talk about The Majestic becoming The Prince. That'd be, uh, that'd be nuts. They really should do that. Yeah. So, yeah, the Broadway, the Broadway would be another option. Oh, but, absolutely. But, <laughs> well, but uh, yeah, but I, I guess maybe we all think the that the Majestic is a you know a better theater and and certainly more and more you know it's on that block that has twelve theaters and so sure. maybe that you know either one would be fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll take whatever we can get. But frankly, um, I would love the Broadway theater to be renamed anything because when something plays there and you say it's at the Broadway theater, you know, it sounds generic. It sounds right. like you know, so. So, yeah, I'm all for the Broadway being uh, renamed. So uh, but yes, whatever it is, um, let it be a Broadway theater and um, let oh, yeah. it uh, happen sooner rather than later. Lots of people who have been talking this week, uh, as you guys both reminisced uh, just now, that there uh, cannot be another Hal Prince, uh, you know, these days because of the way in which Broadway has changed and how pr- how producing right. gets done these days. But I was thinking to myself that uh, the Hal Prince's these of these days could be, you know. Uh, uh, the Oscar Eustace, the uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it, uh, it, yeah. it really the way that Hal Prince produced Broadway is n- right now how large off Broadway theaters get produced. Uh, well, in fact, uh, and Hal, Hal yeah. Prince did say, um, you know, it'd really be great if um, if uh, we could build uh, shows in one building. That if there were the, mm-hmm. uh, the the set models were there's a room there where the guy was designing sets of the costume and all that kind of stuff, sort of running around town and doing all these things. And that's essentially what uh, theaters like the uh, public theater are, you know. And um, so it, it's in a way he was sort of predicting the future by saying, uh, let's have everything be done as much as possible in one building. Um, and uh, so that's kind of interesting. It hadn't occurred to me, but that's that's a good point, James. 
And there are, a f- I guess, a few people uh, who, uh, you know, one thinks of Scott Rudin and Jeffrey Seller. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Where, you know, an individual really takes the reins. Kevin uh, McCollum. Sure. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, yeah, there are a few. Yeah. But they need a lot of help. They need a lot yes. of help. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it seems as though that uh, a lot of wonderful stories from Jennifer Ashley Tepper about Hal Prince and how when she interviewed him for one of her books and he sort of took her under his wing and uh, gave her a lot of access to him. And she has really wonderful stories. And I wonder if the Jennifer Ashley Tepper uh, could emerge as the new Hal Prince so we'll have Good to keep our eyes on that. Yeah. Wish her well. No question. All right. So let's move on to our review section. The three of us got over to see Moulin Rouge. That came through a, a beloved out-of-town tryout in that Boston area. So, Peter, I don't think you saw it in Boston, did you? Oh, I did, in fact. Um, but I will say that uh, when I went there, they said to me, please don't review it. See yeah. the Colonial Theater, review the Colonial Theater, but don't review it. Actually, it's pretty much the same show. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I looked at the song listing. Now, you might say, what song listing? I've got a playbill. Um, yeah. uh, I don't see any song <laughs> listing. Yeah. They don't list the songs in the conventional way, you know, with the um, numbers in, in uh, chronological order with uh, the little dots going across to tell you who's singing. But there is um, a, a list in the background because this is, after all, when you come right down to it, a, a jukebox musical. So as a result, um, I did check the Boston Playbill with the um, current Playbill of the Al Hirschfeld Theater, and I found out that um, a, a song called Burning Down the House has been added, along with David Bowie's Let's Dance and Rebel Rebel. Um, and also there were two songs um, called El Tango de Roxanne and the Pitch Song, on which Baz Luhrmann and uh, Charles Pierce have their names, but... Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were there all along and they didn't get credit in Boston. But but to me, it looked pretty much like the same show. Now, granted, a year has passed, and um, certainly in a year you forget a lot. But as things were unfolding in this show, um, I was saying, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that now. You know. So anyway, um, I have to say the show um, was not for me. But um, I will say that anybody who's designing sets, costumes, and lighting for a Broadway musical this season, forget about winning the Tony. Because um, the awards in this category are going to Derek McLean, Catherine Zuber, and Justin Townsend, for the, respectively, for their sets, um, costumes, and lighting. So, uh, and I think anybody who goes would agree because they're really spectacular looking, you know. So, um, re- you really have to uh, appreciate that that um, it is so wonderful. Um, the, the reason the show's not for me is because um, I will say that this may be a strong way of putting it. But to me, Moulin Rouge insults musicals because um, the songs are so inappropriate for the characters because they're all pop songs from the uh, 20th century, uh, mostly the late 20th century. And the show takes place in 1899. And both in Boston and on Broadway, songs would start and the audience would laugh because the songs are so inappropriate for the characters and Mm -hmm. um, the situation. And um, so what we're doing here is laughing at musicals and uh, saying, oh, aren't musicals silly? That um, it's it's just another way of saying that uh, when people burst out in song, that it's a silly thing to do. Well, it certainly is here because there's, they're 
citing songs that uh, are certainly too late for the action. You know, I wouldn't even mind if the playbill, I did check, you know, as I was watching, saying, wait, 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 maybe they're going to say um, in a time far away, you know, something like that. No, 1899, it's right there. They make <laughs> it very clear that it's 1899. Loose Look Trek is there too. So, I mean, that's another factor as well. Much of this, of course, I'm blaming on Baz Luhrmann and uh, Craig Pierce, I should say, not Charles Pierce, um, who, um, who did the adaptation. But I don't think that they really respect musical. It was like, let's spoof musicals. So, um, so I, it rubbed me the wrong way for that reason. So, um, and by the way, I think the story is just not very interesting because it's the standard story of whether or not a woman will choose a rich man whom she doesn't love uh, as opposed to a poor man um, that she does love. And uh, boy, that seems awfully tired to me. And um, the way it resolves itself is a very time-honored um, deus ex machina as well. Um, uh, is it time-honored or time-worn? That's what it really comes down to. Mm-hmm. This is a show to me that really is all frosting and no cake. Um, and um, if you go for spectacle, and a lot of people do, and a lot of people want their eyes knocked out when they go to a Broadway musical, even to the point where saying, I, I, could, I couldn't even believe they can do that on stage. You're, you're going to get that at Moulin Rouge, no question. It may be one of the reasons why the band's visit didn't run longer, because people were disappointed that it didn't knock their eyes out. Um, <laughs> it was just the show that was good. Um, the music and lyrics in the book were good, you know, but that might not have been enough for some people who really want to be dazzled. And I understand that point of view, really. I mean, when you think of it now, how many... There used to be a statistic, and I bet it's not true anymore, that the, a heavy theater goer goes four times a year that's what the broadway league reported somewhere along the way that was a while ago though and prices have really jacked up including moulin rouge which um after the reviews were good um jacked up some seats to 499 dollars so i think the people who are going four times a year are going three two or one time a year now Mm -hmm. and as a result um they they really don't have um much of a, a a education, shall we say, Uh, that may be too strong a word, but I'll use it, um, in what musical theater is or can be. And as a result, um, it's very easy for these people to come in and uh, say, wow, it was a great show because it dazzled my eyes and not worrying too much about the other things. And again, we're also in an era where jukebox musicals are populous and popular and um, popular. Anyway, um, that they really um, have assets rather than liabilities by having these uh, songs that everybody knows because people want to uh, really have that experience. Again, it's the rock concert mentality that people have gone to rock concerts and equate going to the theater with going to a rock concert, that they're both live experiences. They want the same type of experience now. And when you go to a rock concert, you want to hear your favorite songs. And now a lot of people, when they go to a Broadway musical, want to hear their favorite songs. And this is what's happening. So, um, so again, not for me. Big hit. Big hit. Don't misunderstand me. Um, you know, it's it's going to run for a long time, and it's going to please a lot of people. But you know, it's not my type of show. Michael, what did you think? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the the story may be uh, shop worn or or whatever uh, other words you used, but I think the story still works when we see revivals of La Boheme and La Traviata, uh, or even Rent for that matter. So it's not that the story itself uh, there's anything wrong with that but gosh they um 
they really just don't know what they're trying to do here, uh, do they? I mean, uh, absolutely, I noticed that uh, towards the beginning of the show, uh, it struck me as the first half hour at least, that every time somebody started singing, the audience started laughing because it's the laughter of recognition. Uh, They're giving them what they know uh, by shoving in all of these pop songs and rock songs. And as soon as the first... uh, couple of lines of each lyric goes by and as as soon as the audience recognizes the song they go ha 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 you know to kind of show us uh to show each other that they recognize it and and uh and uh kind of uh almost like how smart am i that i recognize what this pop song is now of course i being a pop music ignoramus only knew about half of the songs so i'm like what are they laughing at (laughs) but i always knew that it was because they were recognizing the song and, and just that was the response that they had. All right. So this is how you open, um, you know, a show that's going to end up really as a tragedy with somebody dying. Uh, I, I hated it uh. for about the ha- the first half hour, because that's all it was, just dumping songs at us, throwing songs at us uh, in, in the most in the silliest manner possible. It, it, it uh, uh, I guess. It obviously reminded me of Mamma Mia, but in that case, that that story I think is is much lighter overall. So in so in in that way, it's less offensive that you have all this giggling, uh, you know, this sophomoric giggling at all these songs being thrown at you. And it really was um, at 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 some point, it was like they they're purposely trying to get you to laugh by. Just going from one song to another. Uh, there, there's a point. I believe it's Karen Olivo's first big number. She does about four or five measures of "Diamonds Are Forever," mm-hmm. the James Bond song. Then she does about maybe six measures of "Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend" <laughs> uh, from "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes," which is, of course, is best known from the movie with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, then it went into another song that I didn't even catch. Uh, I didn't get a chance to write it down because it went away so quickly. Some other famous song there and then it goes into single ladies uh that put that single ladies put a ring on it song isn't it beyonce mm-hmm. yeah. yes it is um and it's like okay um so this is making some kind of an effect but i don't even know what you'd call it it's it's like the worst nadir of a of a jukebox musical um Another thing I noticed, did, did any of you guys notice this? I mean, now Alex Timbers, who directed it, has, has done several musicals at this point, but there were several places uh, in the show, especially towards the beginning, where it was very unclear to the audience whether a song had ended. And so there were several places where uh, people did not know whether to applaud or not. And and I, I mean, I could sense the uncomfortable feeling around me uh, because there was no buttons. There were no buttons to the songs. And then it wasn't clear if it was the end of a song or just the, the end of one part of a mega medley. Um, so that really surprised me. And on a related note, it was the worst curtain call I've ever seen because the, the story of the show ends on a very downbeat note. Then this big production number starts and at first you you think this is the curtain call so people are applauding while the ensemble come out and uh, you know various people come out and then at one point uh danny burstein 
uh, is revealed in a box, uh, standing in a box, or uh, something that looks like a box at, at, the, at the top of the stage. And he pops up out of the box, and uh, the show stops. And I actually saw him waiting to sing uh, because people were applauding him because they thought that was his curtain call. But then he starts to sing and you find out, oh, that's not the curtain call. And he sings and then more happens and then all of that happens. And then the show, that mega mix ends. And then suddenly they do the actual curtain call <laughs> where, you you know, where everyone comes out and, and the applause for everyone is less because that I, previous yeah, thing happened, yeah, including yeah. including yeah. when Karen Olivo and Aaron Tveit came out at the very end, I felt the applause was very tepid for them, not because people didn't like them, but because they felt they had already applauded, applauded. them mm -hmm. during what they thought was the curtain call. So that was a, a tremendous mess. And it amazes me that there was nobody, nobody present to say, hey, Guys, we really have to work that out. And uh, kind of typical of, of what's going on here with really, in a sense, no um, – I mean, certainly technically the show is, is beautiful and brilliant. But uh, it seemed like in some ways people did not know what they were doing. You know, I, I, I'm embarrassed that I didn't mention anybody in the show uh, when I talked a few minutes ago. So I think Aaron Olivo and Aaron – how is it pronounced? Fate. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, do the job quite well. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. And this brings us to Danny Burstein, who, after all, has had multiple Tony nominations and has had to stay in his seat when the winner has been announced every time. And I don't think it's impossible, needless to say, it's early in the season, but I don't think it's impossible that he's going to get the award this year, um, partly because of the fact that uh, he's never won before and people want him to win. Um, but, you know, it reminded me of Julie Stein, who said you always win for the wrong thing because he wrote Three Coins in the Fountain, which beat out um, yeah. uh, The Man That Got Away, which is a much better song, and he admitted that. Um, he lost for Gypsy, um, but won for Hallelujah Baby, um, the, the, the best musical Tony. I mean, you, you always um, win for the wrong thing, he said. And uh, this will be a case of that. Danny's doing an excellent job, and it, it's, it's one of those parts he's playing the MC. It's not nearly as defined a role as it is in Cabaret. Um, in fact, he disappears for long stretches. Mm. However, 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 there's a moment he has when he has to be not the MC, not the owner of the club, which he is, by the way, um, but he really has to tell uh, Satine, uh, his lead uh, performer, who indeed is Karen Olivo, that times are tough and that um, this place may not survive. And he gives such a grounded reality to what he's talking about there, that um, it really shows us who the man really is, because all we've seen is the happy, pleasant MC face that he's been uh, putting out to everybody. And we realize, of course, what a sham this has been, that he has to do the best he can in letting everybody think everything's hunky-dory when it really isn't. And that moment is one where he really does deserve the Tony this year, even though the role is um, one of the smallest that he's that he's had uh, in his career. It really doesn't give him much stage time. So um, so good luck to Danny, who certainly should have won a Tony long before now. And I'm really rooting for him to win this year, even though it won't be for the right show. I completely agree with that, and I'm glad you mentioned it because, uh, as I said earlier, I I really hated the first half hour of the show. But then it seemed like it started to focus a little more on the actual story rather than just throwing all of this 
noise yeah, sure. and lighted us. And yes, that scene, and then uh, and also Karen Oliva's work with him in that scene. And then there were a couple of moments where uh, Karen Olivo and Aaron Tveit were actually able to connect on an emotional level. And they, they actually got me back for a bit there, but then totally lost me again in Act 2 because it was such a mess and so attenuated. So I think if there had been more of that, uh, it would actually have been a, a far better show. And they didn't need to have – how many songs are there in it? Oh. <laughs> um, I, I counted, and I may have missed one or two, or aggrandized, but it, it seems to be 70, 71, 72, something like that. Hey, did yeah, you, you know, see well, the article in the New York Times about how they had to go through legal clearance to get all these songs into the show? I, I did not, imagine. but God, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that must have been uh, quite a, um, a, a terrible ordeal. Yeah. You know, I, 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 Brian Dretman, who uh, was at Universal Music for a while um, and putting out CDs um, with bonus tracks, one time he said to me, you know, boy, you know, um, those bonus tracks, you have to get, you know, clearance from this, that, and the other one. And I thought, you know, we think of those things, we, we don't even give it a thought um, that uh, there's any difficulty with that. We just assume they put them on and, um, and we listen and everybody has a good time. But yeah, there's a lot of legal things that go on with those that uh, really make these people earn their money. And whoever had to do this really did earn his or her money. <laughs> did, uh, I, I equated Moulin Rouge to being the new Mamma Mia, whereas yes, good for you. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah. yeah, a lot of <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, when you started to hear the first chord or first couple of words in Mamma Mia, the audience would burst out laughing because you knew they were shoehorning a song into the plot there, uh, <laughs> and so. Uh, I, I think that there's a place for that, and I had a really good time at Moulin Rouge uh, understanding exactly what both of you were saying this morning, that, uh, it, you know, it, it's from an artistic standpoint, it's not connecting the dots that we traditionally like to see in uh, a Broadway show, but uh, I, I think this is really interesting, and I can't imagine that there's going to be a cast recording of this. I don't know how they would do this. So, uh, yeah, are you joking? That's a very good, interesting point. Oh, I'm and, uh, sure they will figure it out. I have well, you know, uh, no doubt. Uh, I don't think anybody is uh, going to seventy really songs. So it's going to be a four disc set. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think anybody is uh, going to equate "Say Darling" a 1958 Broadway comedy with Moulin Rouge. But um, they made <laughs> they made a cast album, even though they had snippets of songs, and they just put it all together. Of course, that was the glory days of cast album. They had a major label, RCA Victor, doing it. But um, and they even had Sid Raymond come in and do orchestrations for songs that had no orchestrations in the show. Uh, it was a two piano show, but. Um, I don't think it's impossible that we will get Karen Olivo and um, and Aaron Svate to uh, and Danny Burstein um, doing full song versions of what they do in Moulin Rouge. I, I don't think that's impossible, uh, which which may you know because so many people say you know the albums really shouldn't be exactly what the show is because most people don't see the shows and they, they should be listening experience for their own. So who knows? Maybe we'll get um, <clears throat> entire renditions of the songs, a few of them. I don't think it'll be a four disc set. Uh, I know what you mean. It would have to be a four disc set if it went uh, maybe five or six for that matter. Um, but but still, I don't think it's possible to get a Moulin Rouge album that will um, expand the snippets. So considering um, what the uh, the Midtown men have done with Jersey Boys, are we going to see lots of uh, Moulin Rouge in concert type of uh, things? I think entirely that, possible. Yeah. 
entirely Michael, possible. Michael, what were you going to say? Oh, uh, just uh, saying that's an interesting theory, Peter, although I think it would be too much work aside from everything else. And then and then maybe they would also have to pay more, although I don't know how that would yeah, work for the, for, on the recording end. But um, oh, uh, one other thing I almost forgot to mention, for what it's worth, uh, nobody says the Moulin Rouge properly in the show, except <laughs> except for, <laughs> I have to give a shout out to Sar and Gauja, uh-huh. uh, who plays Toulouse-Lautrec and says it and says it uh, perfectly. Uh, but I did notice that. I, and I, I'm sure that's something that that's the last thing that they care about. But it did kind of bother me that they, they were saying Mulan as if it was the title of that Disney movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, now and forever. Over at the Hirschfeld. Yes, I think uh, so. I think uh, so. I think it's going to be a huge hit. Hard to get ticket, expensive ticket. Uh, the grosses are reflecting that already. Uh, and the New York Times article, the headline is, How Can Moulin Rouge, the musical, upstage the movie with 70 songs? Finding spots for the pop songs credited to 161 writers and getting the rights was no can-can. Wow. And so uh, Sopan Deb wrote this article. I'll put it in the show notes uh, for those who would like to read. It's very interesting. And 161. Wow. 161 writers. So, all right. So next up, what do we have in our list of things to do here? Peter, did you get up to Maine? Maine is the main thing. Yes, I did. So I went... I'm not going to attempt the name of the playhouse or the town. So tell us, you saw Cabaret at where? The Agunquit Playhouse. in Agunquit. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, boy, you know, I, this week really has proved to me um, that famous Parkinson's Law. The work takes as long as the time you have to do it. Because uh, both going here <laughs> and to Wichita, um, seeing productions that were put together more quickly than Broadway productions are. And I'm telling you, this production of cabaret was astonishing beyond belief um, up there in uh, Maine. I, I, I was flabbergasted at how spectacular it was. Now, this was the newer version of cabaret, and um, so it, it, it was very much in the style, uh, to say the least, of the original, uh, re- well, the original revival. Um, but there was an original revival, because then there was a revival of the revival. Um, so, tremendously effective, and I, I was just in awe of how wonderful each and every human being was in this show. Um, starting with uh, Randy Harrison, who plays the MC. Now, he's played it before. He did it on tour, and um, he certainly isn't tired of doing it. Uh, galvanizing performance, and not a, an Alan Cumming imitation. No question that um, he was inspired by Alan Cumming's performance and was directed to uh, certainly uh, do things in that um, way, but uh, really, it wasn't um, a, a Xerox or a faded Xerox, so it was really quite nice to see him um, really mesmerize the audience, and it's, you know, this is a very tough show, especially at the beginning, because um, here you are, you're you're in uh, with an audience that um, is used to seeing happy-go-lucky shows uh, in the summer. I mean, Cabaret is not a summer musical, and especially in this production, it's not a summer musical. And the opening sequel with Vilcomen has a lot of, shall we say, um, semi-smutty, semi-dirty jokes in it, and which may struck people 
without the word semi um, in front of it. Uh, and to start off a show with something like that is very dicey. And yet um, the audience went with it because it was so effectively staged. Um, and B.T. McNichol did a wonderful job, and it was nice to see him um, working in this um, area and doing so well. So um, this was a pretty impressive cast for uh, for Ungonquit. Um Kate Schindel, uh, who many people will always think of as Miss America, um, played Sally Bowles and was wonderfully effective. And you know, this this was my um, 16th production of Cabaret. And I didn't see people like Anita Gillette or Penny Fuller, but I will say that I have never heard an audience respond as crazily in, in ecstasy as they did for Kate Schindel's title song, Rendition. Uh, it was amazing, and um, she certainly was rewarded tremendously for it. Um, the tough role in the show has always been Clifford. Um, think about it. Um, <laughs> the, the person who's played Sally, um, Sally has won an Oscar, yeah, and certainly, uh, so many other people have won Tony's, even Fraulein Kost in the original production won a Tony. Granted, it was a year when I Do, I Do had no supporting characters and the apple tree had no supporting characters. Um, so, uh, it, it, it was almost a, 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 a a default type of Tony, but still, you know, I mean, certainly the, the person who's played the MC has won Tony's and an Oscar. Um, and, um, everybody has been nominated at the very least, but never a Clifford. So it's a very tough role, but, um, Billy Harrigan tie, uh, was phenomenal in dealing with all the the joy of being a writer and yet seeing what's going on and little by little calibrating his performance to make things far more serious as time goes on when he realizes exactly what's going on and how he's been enabling it by delivering um, whatever it is. We don't know what's in that suitcase, but we assume it's propaganda. So, um, and uh, he's finally standing up to it. Mariette Hartley, um, who will always be thought of by people of my generation as doing Polaroid commercials with James Garner, wonderful wonderful as Fraulein Schneider doing very well by her songs and um, the way the show is constructed and this sort of mirrors what Michael was saying about Moulin Rouge, when What Would You Do is finished um, Clifford comes right in there's no time for applause and I felt very bad she wasn't getting applause, she got it when she left and I thought that was really quite wonderful that uh, the audience remembered that rendition and appreciated that performance and gave her exit applause which was really great um, John Rubenstein playing her Schultz, uh, tremendous performance, um, getting all the pathos and the joy of falling in love, uh, how wonderful it was to fall in love at this late age, not thinking it might happen to him, but it was happening to him. And then the devastation of having it taken away from him because of politics. So, um, so a terrific production. I can't imagine how they did it in such a short period of time, but again, Parkinson's law. Now, it's interesting. Uh, many people may know, indeed, know Kate Schindel as Miss America, but other people know her as the president of Actors' Equity. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, and, of course, has made some Broadway appearances, um, including Jekyll and Hyde, I know. Um, yes, that's right. She is, indeed. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, uh, and from what I hear, is doing a wonderful job. Um, uh, the actors I talk to tell me that they like her very, very much. So I'm glad to say that, too. Mm. And uh, she did the national tour of Fun Home. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there was uh, it was uh, a, a bunch of stories about when she really cut off all our hair to do Fun Home, 
and uh, wow. what happened surrounding that. So, uh, yeah, quite a cast to get all the way up to Maine. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, uh, well, they get fun. good people up there. They they look at the list of their past shows. They 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 do. I mean, you know, of course it varies, but they. I've heard of some really excellent casts up there. I will say this, that um, um, I went with a friend who, uh, uh, my friend Jay Clark, um, who really should be a casting director. He's just brilliant at casting. But anyway, um, went with him. And so um, I was at his house and uh, he had gone to see 46th Street uh, a few weeks earlier there because uh, he's a regular theater goer. Uh, even though he lives in Massachusetts, he drives up there quite a bit because he believes in the theater that much. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, there was the, the the program for 40 Seconds Street, so I looked through it, and Sally Struthers was in it. Now, most of us know Sally Struthers from All in the Family, um, that legendary TV show from way back when that really broke a lot of rules. So anyway, Sally Struthers talks about this achievement and that achievement, and she actually puts it in her bio. She won um, – and this is like in the middle of the bio. Really, well, towards the end, um, she uh, was named Best Actress for her seventh, for her seventh grade uh, school play. Um, I've, never seen anybody, I've never seen anybody do that. And it, it's not said, uh, the sentence has no irony in it whatsoever. It's really stated the way she would state that she, uh, that she did win Emmys, and it's stated with the same type of uh, matter-of-factness than when she mentions that. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I've never seen anybody uh, cite that. So, um, But good luck to Sally Struthers. And, yes, she is beloved up there, uh, I am told, that um, they're just so glad to have her in, the, in their midst. And she's going to be doing Miss Hannigan soon in You Know What. <laughs> so uh, next up we have Michael went to the Argyle Theater out on Long Island to see Legally Blonde. Tell us about this, Michael. Yes, and, and actually uh, another of Kate Schindel's roles was in Legally Blonde, right? <laughs> in that's the original, right. Yeah, in the original yeah, Broadway yeah, production. Yeah, yeah. So that's our segue for this little <laughs> segment. Um, the Argyle has been doing wonderful shows ever since they opened, uh, what was a year and a half ago? And this is no exception. I, I First of all, I was really... Uh, happy for the opportunity to see Legally Blonde again at all because I had only seen it once when it opened oh. up Broadway, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I mean I don't know how often it's done, but regardless, uh, there's the only yeah. one I had seen, and I remember really liking it, and um, but also uh, thinking that there were some flaws to the writing of the show, so I wanted to see uh, how I would feel, you know, seeing it again, and 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 I did have pretty much the same thoughts. I think the score is really quite wonderful uh, overall, Lawrence O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin. Uh, but um, I remember thinking then and thinking again now that I, there's too much of it. Uh, it's almost, it's uh, you wouldn't say through sung, uh, I mean, but pretty much uh, if, if Les Miserables uh, and Miss Saigon are 98% through sung, uh, maybe uh, Legally Blonde is 80 which is a lot less, but still quite a lot for a musical. There's just not a whole lot of dialogue. And um, I think that sometimes a little more would have helped. Um, An interesting thing is that um, the music is in various styles. A lot of it is contemporary 
pop rock, but there's even some of it that sounds kind of like operetta, <laughs> including a courtroom scene. Uh, yes, yeah, that's true. That, yeah, that, that's almost <laughs> like out of Gilbert and Sullivan or, or yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what is that, Of the I Sing? Uh, I think that's the intention, actually. Uh, but nevertheless, you're quite right in, in describing it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure it's the intention, and, and yeah, I don't yeah. even think it's negative. But I, I No, just, no, it's not. It's not. Yeah, Go yeah. Ahead. Uh, but I just think overall that, that maybe they could have um, focused and edited the musical material a little bit. Um, so, but that said, uh, really, it, I enjoyed it so much seeing and hearing it again that I think I'm going to have to drag out the album and listen to it again. Uh, this was a wonderful production directed and choreographed by Antoinette Di Pietropolo and, uh, really stellar performance of Elle Woods by Becca Andrews, who um, was not the, the, who did not open in this production. There was a, another lady doing it and there was apparently some issue uh, which she had to leave. Not, nothing, nothing about uh, any dissatisfaction with her performance, uh, which I hear was wonderful also. But uh, this Becca Andrews, you are, you're going to really hear from her again. She was just delightful and had so much, charm and charisma and in playing this role that um i mean i always i always liked the the movie and the musical because it upends so many stereotypes you you think it's going to be about a dumb blonde um and she says a couple of things that are make uh, maybe a little you know like humorous and kind of maybe even ditzy but it's obvious that she's a really really smart person as she pursues her law degree <laughs> at harvard um Initially, as a way to get her her boyfriend back, uh, but then you know, but then it becomes something that she realizes she's really good at. Um, uh, so she was great. Uh, th- this uh, fellow who played Emmett Forrest, Tyler McLean, was just fantastic and seemed. It didn't hurt that he really seemed to be law school age. Um, that was. Um, Christian Borle on Broadway, and I don't think it was one of his best roles. He seemed a little miscast in terms of age and maybe in some other ways. Uh, the Boyfriend, Warner Huntington III, played by Jordan Litz, also really great. Um, you know, uh, Evan Pappas is the artistic director of the theater, and um, I think you know I think he has a, a big hand in casting even when he's not directing. And we spoke with him afterwards, and he was saying how happy he was with this cast, including the two dogs. Uh, they were both fantastic. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, this is a great, uh, really great show, as 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 is typical of everything that I've seen there. And they have some wonderful stuff coming up. They have the full Monty uh, opening September twelfth, uh, or starting performances September twelfth. Um, then they have Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, which I, I actually I haven't had a chance to completely check it out, but I think it's. Here's Love, retitled, Probably right? Is, yeah. yeah. Here's Love has been retitled as Miracle on 34th Yes, Street. so that must be it. what they're doing. It, it may very well be, yeah. I think mm-hmm. so. They, all, they also do children's theater shows, but this is part of their regular season, so I, I suspect that's what it is. Uh, and then they have The Little Mermaid, and then guess what they have in March? Cabaret. Uh-huh. Uh, so- <laughs> you know, one point I want to make about Legally Blonde, and uh, that is that um, it does provide a very valuable message, and that is the fact that um, whatever opinions people have of you, if they're negative, you can change them. You know, I, it, <laughs> and I think that really is something that Elwood does, because um, certainly Vivian, 
thinks she's nothing at all, and the professor thinks she's nothing at all. And yet, as you say, she's really bright uh, way down deep and has never had the chance to be bright, really, or the need to be bright, considering where she was brought up and how she was brought up and what her values were at the time. But, but she really rose to the occasion when uh, the occasion started. And um, so I think it really is a wonderful message for kids. And I know this is a popular musical among kids. And I'm glad that they're, they're seeing it. And I hope they take that message away from it, that if somebody doesn't like you, it's not a lifetime sentence. Yes, uh, particularly the role that you mentioned of Vivian, which was the Kate Schindel role. And here is played by Marie Ife, E-I-F-E. Uh, she, as, as the show begins, she really doesn't like Elle. Uh, but then she she grows to respect her because she's obviously very smart and knows what she's doing. And yes, so I think Legally Blonde is a flawed but very wonderful show overall. And I'm glad I got to see it again. It's such a good production. Okay, so that is uh, Legally Blonde, playing at the Argyle Theater through August 25th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you also were, aside from me, you were in Wichita, Kansas at Music Theater mm-hmm. Wichita, where you saw a production of Chicago. So tell us about that. Well, you know, the obvious question is, why would you go to Wichita to see Chicago when it's seven blocks away from where you uh, live? Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, really. Um, well, a couple of reasons. One, um, I did visit Chicago some time ago. I'm not going to say when. I don't want to indict um, too many people, but um, I found it tired to the point of being exhausted. That may not be the case today. It might have been an off performance. It might have been a lot of things. But nevertheless, it was pretty tired. But what I really hated was during the entract, an actor came down to the footlights and uh, started clapping his hands over his head. Uh, indicating that um, you should clap along with him. Um, so uh, I don't think Chicago really needs that. And um, so I, I, I thought, you know, Wichita, they do such phenomenal productions. Again, Parkinson's Law, 10 days of rehearsal, 10 days of rehearsal, and really crisp as can be, just wonderfully done. Um, and um, there's a marvelous guy there named Brian J. Markham, um, who I've seen do choreography, but this time he took on both roles. And it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite the Broadway choreography uh, or the Broadway direction. No question, this is the uh, revised version of Chicago. It wasn't the show that was done in 1975. It's the edited down David Thompson version uh, with the orchestra on stage and in in the riser position. Um, So I I, I prefer the original Chicago, but this is what they did. And... um, but they did it splendidly, and you really have to be impressed by um, the people in the cast. Now, first off, um, <clears throat> they did get uh, a woman who has played the role on Broadway. Um, play- Roxy Hart is what I mean, and um, uh, Ann Horak is her name. And uh, you could tell that she really did the role. Now, of course, Chicago is never meant to be a show um, that's realistic. It's done as a musical vaudeville, as the, um, as the uh, subtitle says, a musical vaudeville. And that's significant because um, there are so many numbers that are homages to vaudeville numbers. Mama Morton's um, When You Go to Mama is a Sophie Tucker song. Um, Amos Hart's Mr. Cellophane is a Burt Williams song. Um, Nobody uh, was his famous signature song. So, um, And uh, Roxy sits on top of piano the way Helen Morgan did when she sang Bill. Um, so th- that's what they did. And, you know, if it were a realistic musical, it would be very hard to get behind Roxy Hart, who, after all, is a murderess. Or as, um, <laughs> as she says to um, Billy Flynn, you treat me like I'm some dumb common criminal. And he says, but you are 
a dumb common criminal. And indeed, that's what Roxy Hart is. So, um, and yet, Anne Horak ma- managed to find some humanity in this in this character. I've never seen anybody do that, and that that it it was fine to see it. It really was. Now, um, just as impressive um, <laughs> and and amazing experience um, was Ellen Marie Marsh. Now she's in Pretty Woman. And she took a leave of absence to do this show to play Velma Kelly. And the minute the show was over, she went to bed and got up the next morning and had to fly back to New York uh, to do Pretty Woman because uh, performances were resuming that night. And um, she was marvelous, too, uh, playing Velma Kelly. the, the crispness of it, you know, was just so wonderful. Now, they don't always just import uh, people from New York. They have a, a real um, audience favorite there, uh, Timothy W. Robu, R-O-B-U. Um, he and his wife performed there quite a bit, and um, and he played Amos. And I have never seen an audience have such sympathy for Amos, um, to hear the audible awes when things weren't going well for him, feeling bad for him. I do think some of it is um, sort of a lifetime achievement um, or, you know, that uh, they've come to know him for so many shows that they actually have bonded with Timothy W. Robu. Um, but um, the performance was excellent, excellent. Uh, so I think uh, that certainly has a lot to do with it as well. So um, uh, also in the Lifetime Achievement uh, category, um, Thomas W. Douglas, uh, who's the musical director-conductor there, same type of thing. When he came out for the second act to start the band, the applause really was of that value, that it really was not just we are applauding because the conductor came out here and that's what you do at a musical. Um, it was, you know, Thomas, um, we really appreciate what you've been doing for us all these years. And that's the remarkable thing about going to Wichita. 2,200 seats. Now, at intermission, I was talking to the artistic, producing artistic director, Wayne Bryan, and we were talking, talking, talking. And as a result, um, I was late getting back to my seat. And um, the, the entract had already started um, I saw three performances, by the way, in case you're saying, wait, 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 how do you know you got the applause if you were late? Um, uh, I went three times because I always do a witch attack of the productions are so marvelous. So anyway, um, I got back and I thought, well, you know, I'll just go to the back and I'll sit in the back in the seat. I couldn't. The place was packed, packed. I mean, a 2200, I don't know what was in the balcony, mm. to be fair, but 2200 seat theater, and this is the thing to do in Wichita. I mean, it's, it, you might say, well, what else is there to do in Wichita? Yeah, what else is there to do in a lot of cities that have tried musical theater and certainly haven't been nearly as successful as this place? And you really have to give credit to Wayne Bryan, who, like Hal Prince, I have never heard a bad word about. Never, never. <laughs> Never. And as a result, it's just amazing the work that he does there and um, gets people to do it in no time flat and indeed do it splendidly. So um, so congratulations to everybody involved with this production. Uh, a, a tremendous achievement and reminding us, too, that a lot of people say, well, the golden age of musicals uh, died in the 60s. No, uh, you know, I saw Chicago and Chorus Line on the same day in 1975. Now, there was still a golden age left, and this is one of them. And there was a part of me that said, hmm, do I really want to see Chicago again? Do I really want to see it three times? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. After seeing it um, that one time uh, on uh, Saturday night, yes, I wanted to see both performances on Sunday. And it really was like revisiting an old friend uh, when um, musical theater was so intelligent in so many ways and decisions were made that were just marvelous. Um, Even uh, the moment where um, the narrator tells us that um, Roxy is going to do a tap dance uh, to get Amos to help her. Mm. And that's that's a real expression. Um, It's not something 
something they invented, and they and they were the chorus boys doing the tap. Uh, but the ensemble was incredible, incredible. I mean, I even liked in Cell Block Tango. Um, many times cell block tango was done in such ways if the women are trying to convince us they're innocent. Um, but after all, they are singing. He had it coming. So the in- intention here was really, I'm telling you the story. I'm telling the police and I don't mean it for a second, um, but they had it coming. There really was that undertone, uh, throughout the, you know, no, she, he read it to my knife 10 times was said with, um, I know you don't believe it. And I I'm saying it because I'm glad that I stabbed him ten times. So the, uh, really uh, 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 close to perfection. So, but that's music theater of Wichita. That's what they do. Well, you know, theater I Wichita. No, uh, <laughs> I didn't tell this story. But several weeks ago, I, I was at the um, down at the pier uh, by the Intrepid. I think it's Pier eighty four. It was like a, a lovely night. I think it might have been July Fourth weekend, and I just wanted to go down and hang out there. And I was sitting on a bench, and this couple came over about my age, and they sat down, uh, and we started talking, and they were very nice. And they said, uh, f- first of all, they said they were pleasantly surprised. It was their first time in New York, and they found that the stereotype of rude New Yorkers was absolutely not true, and they said everyone had been so helpful and nice to them. I said, well, well that's nice to hear. Anyway, we started talking, and it turned out they were here on a theater trip seeing several shows i don't uh, i don't remember which ones and so and then it turned out that they uh said that they you know they were they would go to see shows in their area and and one of them said at one point and actually a friend of ours does shows there but you would have never heard of him his name is wayne bryan and i I said actually i said i do know who wayne is and i believe he was on our podcast yes we had wayne on so we had so I just thought that was a little little uh funny little sweet occurrence that happened on that pier a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh Michael, you should, totally should have robbed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You gotta keep the New York uh cred up there. It's all a scam. I'll bring up Wayne Bryan while I'm picking your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Wayne Bryan, that's right. <laughs> you gotta pick you gotta pick a pocket or two. You do, yeah. All right. <laughs> So, Michael, you got over to Irish Rep to see Love Noel, the, uh, Steve Ross and Katie Sullivan doing uh, Noel Coward songs. So tell us about that. Yeah, actually, if I may correct you, it's Love Noel because it's, Noel. it's, it's Cowell, right. yes. Coward. And it's got the <laughs> – so he's got the, the umlaut. Although uh, it's funny when I was – they did – they. And then this was my first time in the basement space at Irish Rep. And they had another show upstairs. And so um, – uh, so one of the ushers said, uh, you know, was directing me which way to go. And she said, uh, oh, well, you're seeing Love and Noel, and that's downstairs. And I was trying to think of who that would have been about. Uh, Noel Neal <laughs> from Superman or uh, Noel – what other Noels are – anyway, it's Noel Coward. And uh, this show has a two-person cast, but two really fabulous people, Steve Ross, who basically plays Noel Coward throughout. And – KT Sullivan, who plays, uh, well, several, several other people. Um, and this is an, an evening not only of, 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 of a wonderful collection of Noel Coward's brilliant songs, for which he wrote both the music and the lyrics, uh, but also his letters. And he was, uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, as witty uh, off stage as on and and in his letters as in his writings for the theater, so they're just wonderfully, fabulously witty 
letters and correspondence with all sorts of people. And Katie Sullivan, um, uh, aside from using her own voice and persona, uh, also takes on personas of several notables, including Elaine Stritch uh, and Marlena Dietrich and Gertrude Lawrence. Now, it, uh, I have seen Katie Sullivan in often in many things, but I have to say this was the best show I've ever seen her in. She uh, was, uh, she just proved to be a wonderful comedian, which I don't think I've, I've seen her have to flex that muscle before as much. And also a really good mimic. It's uh, her, uh, if you know her persona, I mean, she, she, she normally, first of all, sing soprano uh that that's where her voice lives uh, for the most part uh but you would never you would never think that she'd be able to do a a good elaine stretch <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or marlena dietrich both of whom were you know altos so uh, but yes she was really fantastic with the dialects and the accents and the the speech patterns of both of those women uh so uh, this was a revelation uh to me as far as her being able to do all of that kind of stuff. I really am very glad I saw it for her. And Steve Ross is just um, won every award possible as a cabaret artist. He's witty. He's urbane. His piano playing is is glorious. And his interpretative interpretive ability as, uh, uh, you know, in, in singing lyrics is is equally phenomenal. So he was just about the perfect person to play Noel Coward. I have heard that this same show uh, or previous incarnations of it have been done before with other couples that I would have equally liked to see. For example, it was done, uh, I read somewhere, with Edward Hibbert and Christine Ebersole. Mm. Uh, so I would have liked to see that too, but I am not disappointed with having seen Steve Ross and Katie Sullivan. By the way, this show was... Uh, Devised and written by Barry Day. That's how it it's billed and directed by Charlotte Moore. And you, you can catch it through uh, – it just opened actually at Irish Rep. So it's going for a little while longer and I would highly recommend uh, that you attend because it's really just delightful and wonderful. Okay. So that wraps it up for today. Before we catch up on trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today including uh, a bunch of pieces on Hal Prince and the uh, New York Times article on the Moulin Rouge songs from Sopan Deb and all sorts of other things. So Peter, do you have an answer for trivia from two weeks ago? The question was, his name is on more than one wildly successful movie musical. In the decade before those came along, his name was in the credits of a very different kind of non-musical film. That one is mentioned in the opening song of a musical that was an enormous hit on stage in London, but a quick failure here. Who's the director, the movie musical, the non-movie musical, and the cult musical? So the man in question is Robert Wise, who co-directed West Side Story and directed The Sound of Music. So those are the two major movie musicals. I don't think anybody would disagree that they are. Hmm. Um, He was also the director of the science fiction movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, 
which is referenced in science fiction double feature. Uh-huh. Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, the opening number of the Rocky Horror Show, which was a hit in London and a fast flop on Broadway when it was first produced in 1975. Uh, yes, it did run uh, virtually a year um, uh, when it was revived um, this century, but, uh, well, <laughs> depending how you look at it, it was 2000, so... Mm. Some people consider that this century and others don't. Um, anyway, Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Donald Tessioni, Brigadude, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gabberman. But no Tony Janicki. Lost interest, Tony? What's going on? All right. <laughs> <laughs> this week's question. One of musical theater's most illustrious shows has a song that finishes not with a sung note, but with a spoken sentence with six words in it, and then an orchestral note. However, when the show had its London premiere, that sentence was replaced with, well, I'll be damned. What's the <laughs> song, the show, and the replaced line? If you are damned, then email us at broadwayradio.com and let us know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Happy to see you.